Good morning. It is good to be here with each of you. I see we have a number of guests, so warm welcome to you. Uh, you've been sitting for a little bit, and we'll be sitting for a little longer. Stand up and say hello to somebody. God himself is present. Let us now adore him. It goes along well with the message that I have this morning. Before we get to it, though, I'd like to bounce back to what we covered a couple of weeks ago. And I know some of you enjoy details and imagining things. And I showed you a bar graph stemming from this data. I have a little sheet that I'd put together a number of years ago. Just thinking about the span of life and uh, who lived when in the Old Testament. One of you commented to me, well, it's interesting to note who was alive when future generations were alive. So I thought, well, I ought to put it on and let you all see that. That is fascinating. It doesn't that really have anything to do with this morning. This is a wrap-up from last time. But if you'll notice, these are years from creation according to the biblical record of when people were born or when they died. And the two things I'd point out that are of interest, if you look at uh, Joseph, no, let's do this. Go up to Noah. If he passed away 2,006 years after creation, look at who was alive at that point. Would have been all the way down to Abraham. And you think about that, that many generations, the population growth, the resettlement of the world, and you wonder, okay, so did Abraham talk to Noah? Well, they didn't travel like we do today, and so the possibility of them being in a different place and proximity would have been a, a problem. Look at Shem, who lived through the flood and passed away 2,158 years later. He would have been alive, still alive, when Jacob was living. I just find that fascinating to think about. In that oral tradition, that history that was passed down in, in the way that they did it, you actually could know people that were many generations older than you. You could hear their stories. They were eyewitnesses. And it lends credence to the biblical record when you think about that span and how much time actually went by. So that's a little aside. I'm fascinated by things like that. Uh, I want to come, though, to today's message. Who lives with God? This is the third in a trilogy of messages that I don't 
I haven't mentioned that I was doing it, but you've heard the other two already in previous months. Coming from Psalm 24, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Also coming from Micah 6.8, where it's a statement, it's not a question. He just says, who has shown you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? And then he talks about a few things. Today I'd like first to look at Psalm 15. And once again, it begs the question. Two questions in verse 1. Lord, who can abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And it's not a in-your-face question. There's no antagonism here. It's coming from an honest, sincere heart of, God, I want to know, what does it take for someone to dwell in your presence? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? I want to look at the way Psalm 15 answers that this morning. God is present with us. I appreciate that song and the way it ties. God himself is present. The question is, are we present with him? Are we in his presence? And I appreciate the description here, a very practical description. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is I'd like for us to read together. I have it on the screen. And I'd like for you to read with me aloud these five verses from Psalm 15. A short psalm, but very informative altogether. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he is those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall not be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's go back to the question. Who can be where God is? Who can live with God? It's a sincere question, just asking who can be where God lives. And I'd like for us to look at those two phrases I think they're significant in understanding the way that he answers it. He talks about a tabernacle and the holy hill. What might he be referring to? Is it two different things that he's talking about? I believe it is. If you think about what the tabernacle was, the tabernacle was a temporary place. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, I think it was one year, was it the second 
month of the second year, I believe, after they left Egypt, that they completed this tabernacle. It took them seven months to build it. And it was where God's presence came down, they would see it. You remember, as they were going through the wilderness, they had this pillar of cloud and fire. Well, when they camped, that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud and fire, it would be at the tabernacle. And when it was time to move, the cloud would move away and they would follow. But it was there at that temporary place, they would take the tabernacle, it was a big tent. They would take it up and down as they traveled in the wilderness. But it was God's house. It was where he lived. It was a portable thing. Uh, found it interesting. We typically don't, we know the tabernacle was there in the wilderness wanderings. But I think often when we get to what happened after they got in the promised land, we tend to lose what happened with it. It was still being used. Uh, jotted a few notes here. Joshua 4.19, they first set it up at Gilgal after they crossed the Jordan River. Uh, in Joshua 18, they moved it to Shiloh, which is where it remained through the time of the judges. And after that, you'll remember the story of the ark being taken into battle and the Philistines capturing it. The ark did not come back to the tabernacle until the time of David. So there were some years the ark was out of it. But there is other record of where that old tabernacle that was originally established, it was moved to Nob in 1 Samuel 21 uh, till Saul destroyed it. And then later to Gibeon. And then finally, it says that there was a tent erected by David. And presumably that was a different one. He did that at Jerusalem since he wasn't allowed to build the temple, and that's where the ark was brought back to. So this thing, it traveled with the Israelites all the way up into, who built the temple? Solomon, David's son. Where did he build the temple? On Mount Moriah. And that takes us to the second part of this question. The first one is, who can abide in your tabernacle? Who can live in your holy hill, dwell in your holy hill? I think that's refer referring to the temple mount there. But in the tabernacle, I think that analogy is that we're on the journey of life. And it's asking the question, who can live with God as we go through life? As we go through the journey of life and we're walking whatever our path is, how do we have God with us in that? John 15 tells us we're to abide in him. And this is not, I'm not going to go into that a lot other than to say through that journey we're connected to him. He's a source of life. He's always present with us. It's a picture of the church engaged. The church is engaged in the journey of life. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? And the verses that follow are going to describe that. Now, dwelling in the holy hill, this was a more permanent structure. More permanent. It was permanent. It was torn down. But it was something that took many, many years to build. Large stones and uh, a very large, beautiful edifice. And once again, God's presence resided there in the holy of holies. Uh, you want to read a fabulous story of the presence of God coming there. Read the story of Solomon and the sacrifices and what happened as the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I think this also points to our experience. 
We're not Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We're not living in Canaan with a temple. What's the holy hill that we might look at? I believe it's the good day that is coming, the day of the Lord. When we leave this earth, we no longer need temporary tabernacles. We go to a permanent place to be with him forever. So I think the verses that follow are descriptive of walking with God in the journey of life and also descriptive of who are the kinds of people that will live with God forever in glory. Here are the answers. We're going to look at them one verse at a time. And I just have a simple phrase as a very simple outline, but to capture something within each verse. Verse 2, truth from the inside out. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, this is the kind of person that lives with God. Walking uprightly and working righteousness. There's a walk. It's an ongoing thing. There's a working. There's intentional things that are done. I think it's both habitual and intentional. There's some things in this walk, they just happen. It's the path you're on. There's other things that's more deliberate. Uh, I was reminded of the description of Zachariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1. It says, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Also to think in Ephesians 2, the description of salvation. This thing that's, these things that are being described here are not things that we do to earn salvation. They're coming out of the heart that has been changed by the Lord Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Unto good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the walk. That's what's being described. We do the right thing in daily life. The people we work with, our family, our friends, the people we rub shoulders with, they see that change of heart. There's not a duplicity that happens where we have somebody who's a Christian one day, I say that, I think you understand the way I mean it, and other days they don't act like a Christian. No, it's all of the time. The gospel of Jesus is consistently lived out because that person has been transformed from the inside out. There's completeness and sincerity to that faith in walking and working. You can expect the same thing from the individual on Sunday and every other day of the week. It says here he speaks the truth in his heart. This person is somebody who tells themselves the truth about themselves, about others, and about God. And that happens on the inside. I expect I'm not alone in needing to deal with thoughts that come in the mind 
could be morally wrong thoughts, but sometimes they're just untrue. We have to inform those thoughts of what truth is. And we have to pull ourselves back and be grounded. This is truth. I choose to believe truth. I speak the truth in my heart. When we do that, it allows our public presentation to be realistic and clear. It's neither exaggerated nor hidden. It's just genuine. And it's one of the, the those two things are ditches that people fall into. Either tend to hide things, become hypocritical, or there's a lot of words or description or exaggeration. No, what God wants is just the truth. Just here it is. This is the way it is. I tell the truth to myself about myself, God, and others. Listen to these words from Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, because it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We must be in tune with the Spirit, allowing Him to inform us of truth, and that pushes away those untruths. We speak the truth in our hearts. Truth from the inside out, and then we go to verse 3, we have love in action. Just note this backbiting with the tongue, doing evil against others, and taking reproach against others. Those are the three things that he addresses. He's talking about how do we relate to other people. I don't think backbite is in many of our vocabularies. I don't know that I have ever used it in normal conversation. What is it? Essentially, it's being talkative against someone else. Slander, uh, speaking ill of others, speaking demeaningly of them. And I find it interesting that while this is in the Old Testament, we do have the word in Romans 1, uh, in that description of people who are without God, the first word in verse 30 is backbiters. And it's connected, it's in that list of people who will not see God. These are people who do not retain God in their knowledge. With these people, this backbiter, he speaks evil of others. A fairly simple one I don't have. I'm not going to say a lot more about it. It's just there. That is not what we are to do. 
does not act with evil towards others. The wording here is, nor doeth evil to his neighbor. It's the absence of malicious acts. It's also the presence of doing good to those around us. It's not just ignoring the neighbor. It's not, it is definitely not doing malicious things, but it's also doing good to them. Romans 13.10, love works no ill to his neighbor. 3 John 1.11, beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God. And it reinforces this concept of we don't do evil towards others. We do good to them. And then we have that phrase, does not take up a reproach. This is one that could be talked about for quite a while. I'm going to let the Spirit of God apply it to you. But it comes in the realm of not immediately believing or holding hearsay against other people. Do you believe the best in others? Or are you quick to cast them into ill light? Are we willing to believe in the good of others? Do we hold grudges? Do we let it go? The answer to this one is to acknowledge and deal with truth as it is without quickly standing in judgment of others. It doesn't mean you don't deal with what is. It doesn't mean you ignore problems. I'm not saying that at all. That we have other scripture that would come into play here. Uh, we do address problem areas. First of all, with ourselves and to our brothers, with our brothers and sisters. But we don't take up reproaches. We don't hold grudges. We don't go there quickly. We are gracious. We seek what is true, and we deal with the truth. There's an alignment with God's values. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he, who honors, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Two core values here. Loathing the ways of the wicked and valuing the family of God. Valuing the ways of God. If you look at verse 4, the wording is very strong. This person who lives with God, a vile person is despised. Now does that mean that you really look down on evil people and you don't accept them, you don't work with them? What does that mean? For me, I think it's helpful to loathe the ways of the wicked. To not revere anything that is done in wickedness. We can love the person. We can reject the attitudes, the value system. We can reject what is untrue. We don't think of them more highly. Sometimes people like that look successful. You go to Psalms and you'll hear David struggling with that. 
about being envious of the wicked. There's a caution against that. Maybe it's in Proverbs. I'm sorry, I don't have that reference. Don't be envious of the wicked. There's a, a judgment day coming. But he honors those who fears the Lord. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's how empty this way of the wicked is. And sometimes when it looks attractive, we need to remind ourselves, that's just like having traded in living water, a big spring, a fountain of life, and now you go, you think your water supply is going to be this broken clay pot that's cracked and it can't even hold water. That's the contrast that's being made here in Jeremiah. Isaiah 32, 6, For the vile person will speak villainy. His heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter against the Lord to make empty the soul of the hungry. He will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. It's a very, very selfish approach. It is not in alignment with the values of God. So we come back to this. The vile person is despised, but we honor those who fear the Lord. When we see righteous, those who fear the Lord, we honor them. Even if they're simple or poor, they're part of the family of God, and those are the people that we elevate in our minds. I had to think of some of the things that... Uh, no, let's wait on that a little bit. I want to, Moses' example. I think he's a good example of choosing uh, to reject the world and the, the evils that come with it and choosing instead, we have this in, choosing instead to walk with God. We have this in Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I read that because uh, Moses had a very deliberate choice. He was needing to choose between, do I honor? Do I follow this? I'm in the royal family. I've been adopted into that. Do I stick with that and the pleasures of Egypt, or do I identify with the people of God? Now, for us, it may not always be that striking on the surface, and yet it is that striking when we began thinking about who do we value, who do we, uh, who do we want to be with? And that's really where the, some of the things that I was thinking about here, it, how, do I, how do we apply that? One of the things I had to think of was what Jesus said when he talked about who you invite to your feasts. Who are the people that you like to be seen with? Do we do it for a reward? He talks about when you have a feast, invite people that can't pay you back. I know the temptation of wanting to be associated with people of esteem in the community. People who have a good social standing. 
Maybe they're financially well off. Maybe it's the wealthy people in the community around us. I know the pull of that. And yet when you look at what the Bible says is pure religion and undefiled, when you look at who we're called to minister to, I think that pull comes from something carnal. It's not in alignment with God's values. So who are you? Who am I? No, really, who, who are we? Who are you? On the inside, what are the things that pull you and drive you in relationship? Are wicked people, vile people, do their values and lifestyle, is it really repulsive to you? Now, the Christian response is one of love. It's not one of demeaning and hatred. Is that who you want to be? What if they're wealthy? Does that change the way you feel about them? Here's one other one in this verse. Alignment with God's values. He that swears to his own hurt and does not change. One of the things that you will find, if you look at, there's a few places in Scripture where it's listed. These are abominations to God. These are things God hates. In one of those lists in Proverbs, you have untruthfulness listed twice in a group of seven. There's something about God and his orientation towards what is right and true and good, that he cannot abide the opposite of that. And so in verse 4 here, we have this situation where somebody says something and it's like, oops, I didn't get that one right. This is going to cost me maybe financially, maybe some other way. But it's not going to come out right for me. He that swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. This is a person of integrity. People who do what they say they're going to do. That might be with money, it might be with time, it might be whatever, it could be other things. The point is people of trust and integrity. People who do what they say and are willing to suffer loss rather than break their word. You know, in our business dealings, the other party, as Christians, I'm making this statement, and this is not just for business owners, this is anybody. We all have business dealings of some sort. In all business dealings, the other party must feel like they are dealing with people of integrity. If the people we interact with come away from interacting with us and they don't feel that, I think we need to ask why. It doesn't mean that there won't be problems in relationships, misunderstandings, or whatever, but that needs to be the way that we present and we follow through on what we'll say we're doing. The truth is foremost 
even when it may seem expedient to omit pertinent information or to give a slant that we know is different from reality. What others see and hear is what they can count on. There is no hypocrisy here. Alignment with God's values and now alignment with God's economy. Verse 5, the first portion of that. He that puts his money, puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, or in the New King James it says, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So we're dealing two issues here, money at usury and bribery. Those are to be absent. So once again, we have a word that is not in my normal vocabulary of usury. What is it? I've heard and read a couple of different definitions. The one that I think is most plain and without question is simply that usury is unfair, unfairly high interest on money. And so you'll have actually in our in many countries, usury, that is a legal term that is used, and it, it's had, that's the modern definition. That's why there's legal limits on how much interest uh, places can charge. Credit cards, cash advances, those kinds of places are very rough. They take it to the maximum. And it's also why most banks are nowhere close to that. They, they follow another standard in determining what that interest rate should be. The other take that some people have given this throughout history, uh, I first bumped into this when I was a teenager, and it was a small sum of money, but a family member, not immediate family, extended family member, wanted some money and needed some money for something, and I had it in the bank, I let them use it, and I was thinking about what's the interest going to be, how's that going to work, and I remembered this verse, as I had recently bumped into it in my study time. And at that point, I just said, I'm not charging my aunt anything. She can just use the money. And that's the perspective that some people have taken, is that there shouldn't be interest. I don't think it's as easy to make that case biblically. And in the use of money and the use of assets for there to be some compensation, I, I'm going to allow some room for that. But the key thing you can come back to is there cannot be any taking of advantage of other people. And so I'm going to say that in their dealings with money and helping other people, at the very least, there's going to be some situations where we say, that's low interest, that's no interest, and maybe it's even just a gift. Somebody needs help, I'm just going to give it to them. I'm not saying that any of, I'm not painting a broad stroke and saying that you must do all of these, or I'm, I don't, I'm just saying those are the kinds of things I think we need to be open to. You can go to the words of Jesus 
And he, can, and he tells you to give, not expecting anything in return. There are cases to be made for being very generous. Now, if you're on the receiving end, don't develop any kind of an entitlement mentality. Very counterproductive to do that as well. But on the giving side, those are things I think we have to think about. We'll just briefly read a few verses where in Nehemiah, the temple was being built. People were coming back from taken into, being taken into captivity. In Nehemiah 5, we have this story that is an example of where people are being taken advantage of by their brothers. There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren, the Jews. For there were they that said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that, they, that we may eat and live. Some also there were, there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute. They had to borrow money to pay their taxes. And upon, that upon our lands and vineyards... And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and vineyards. So I don't know if you could follow that. The picture is we have poor people. They're paying tribute to the king. They're having to borrow money. They're mortgaging their property. They can't even make a living. And now other, their fellow Jews are basically making them slaves. They're taking advantage of them. They're saying, well, let me have your son or daughter as a servant. Let me have your last piece of land. Let me have your house. You know, that, that's going to be for the debt. The response of Nehemiah was, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words, then I consulted with myself. That's an interesting phrase. I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Ye exact usury every one with his brother, and I set a great assembly against them. And the, I won't read the rest of the story. I think what he means by he consulted himself, he just admitted he was very angry. And I think he stepped back from that and he gathered himself together and he did not respond in angry, but it was very firm. So we are in alignment with God's economy. We don't take advantage of other people. The second part of that, taking advantage of or uh, alignment with God's economy, deals with bribery. When money is involved, Does it influence the way you think about a situation? I think most of us would say, I can't be bribed. Uh, probably the closest thing in our culture that would come to that is this thing of people wanting to pay you cash so they don't have to pay taxes. I know numerous ones of you have dealt with that. And it's like, you know, if, if this is a taxable event, it doesn't really matter how you pay me, I'm still gonna report my income. And yet they're saying that it's this exchange of money idea influencing what we do and what is right or wrong. Now the bribe 
is I give you money in exchange for a favor that you can give to me. It's not paying for a service, it's influencing this. It usually involves bending the rules or breaking laws or disregarding what is right. So the principle here, I think, it, as I said, most of us don't deal with outright bribery. Maybe some of you have. It's not been my experience. What is the principle behind that that is very much where we are today? And I think it could be simply said in this way. Do not allow money to influence what is right. Do not allow finances to change the way that I approach a situation. If it's right, it's right. Doesn't really matter what's happening on the money side. Don't accept payment in exchange for favor that you can show to others. Matthew Henry, I think, is a very good summary of this particular section. He says this, quote, He is one that will not increase his estate by any unjust practices, not by extortion and not by bribery. So that's the description of the person who can live where God is. It's the person that tells the truth from the inside out. They're changed from the inside out. They have love and action the way that they interact with other people. They align their lives with God's values. They align with God's economy. And what's the conclusion? It's the end of verse 5. He that does these things shall never be moved. It's painting a picture of someone, while they may be in the difficulties of life, there may be temptations and struggles or something very solid that's happening here. These people who out of a changed heart, a changed life, they're living they're living in God's value system. They're doing what's honoring to him. Those people find stability and security. They remain close to God. Those who stay in the tabernacle of God in the journey of life always have the source of strength. God, he's the source of strength. They always have that with them through the difficulties of life. And these same people will arrive at Mount Zion. One day, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. There's going to be a place where the presence of God is. There is no darkness. There is no pain and sorrow. That's where God is. These are the people who will live there. They shall never be moved. And I thank the Lord for that. I'd like for you to read one more brief passage with me from Romans 8. At the end, towards the end of the chapter, I think it gives this picture of the love of God and the strength that He gives us as we walk with Him. Altogether, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am persuaded. He shall not be moved. I've been encouraged in thinking about who lives with God. How do I please God? I want it to inform the way I live. And I pray that you all can be encouraged to do that as well. Let's pray.